I'm Ruma Tenbrink, and welcome to the Children's Bedtime Stories podcast for adults. I am so excited to be reading to you my first book this evening. I really hope you enjoy this, and I hope it helps you fall asleep in a beautiful slumber and take you to a faraway land. Thank you so, so much for listening. World-renowned musician, environmentalist, and humanitarian, Dave Matthews, in collaboration with popular children's book author Cleet Barrett-Smith, has conjured an exciting and poignant fantasy about a girl who must confront her past mistakes before she can save her peaceful forest community from a gigantic threat. I am honored to read to you, If We Were Giants, Little Voices Can Have a Huge Impact. Let joy begin as we read Part 2, The Tree Folk, Chapter 10. Hello, hello, Dave Matthews and... Cleet Barrett-Smith fans, thank you so much for listening. And I would like to do a shout out to all these single, amazing people. And when I say singles, I just mean it's a single person. Not that they're single, they could be married. But um, yeah, I just want to do a quick shout out to these amazing people in these incredible cities, some of which I've never heard of. So this is kind of fun. And I just love the stats that I can look at on my podcast to see where people are. And it just really honestly, it makes the world a smaller place. And it just, I feel so connected to everyone. It's its incredible. So I will start with Bloomington, Indiana. And I'm just going to go for about a minute. Otherwise, this will take all night. <laughs> Sebago, Maine, Greenford, England, Islington, Islington, Warwick, Rhode Island, Algona, Iowa, Gravesend, England, Fuor y Grotta Campania, Bethesda, Maryland, Swinton, England, Gatineau, Quebec, Camden, New Jersey, White Oak, Maryland, Williamstown, New Jersey, Saco, Maine, Gainesville, Georgia, Wichita, Kansas, Sutton Coldfield, England, Palmerton, Pennsylvania, Oakville, Ontario, woot woot, that's my province. Coventry, England, Lubbock, Texas, Camrose, Alberta, that's another province I used to live in, Natick, Massachusetts, Winters, Texas, Mount Nasura, Western Australia, East Norwalk, Connecticut, Dublin, California, in the house, Bangkok, Bangkok, thank you for listening, Prairie Village, Kansas, Newman, Georgia, Mackenzie, Tennessee, Aris, Lombardy, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Waltham, Massachusetts, Birmingham, Alabama, and I'll do one more page, Pahoa, Hawaii, Liverpool, New South Wales, Springfield, Missouri, Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, Brentwood, Tennessee, Franconia, Virginia, ooh, maybe they are related to Dave, <laughs> Posen, Michigan, Oakley, Utah, Reno, Nevada, Kanab, Utah, Cayley, England, San Luis Obispo, California, woo, woo, love that place, 
Love the Slow Brewing Company. It's amazing. Hayes, England, Collingwood, Ontario, and East Wareham, Massachusetts. That's where I will stop for this evening. Again, I want to thank each and every one of you for your support, and I'm excited to shout out all these cities, some of which, again, I've never heard of. And, you know, it's just amazing how many people are listening to my little podcast all over the world. So thank you so, so much, and I really hope you continue to enjoy this incredible story written by Dave Matthews and Cleet Barrett-Smith. You are listening to If We Were Giants, Part 2, The Tree Folk, Chapter 10. Any member of the tree folk could leave the community and wander about the surrounding lands whenever they wanted, but 14-year-old Kira rarely did. Instead, it was her preference to stay safely inside the hut, doing daily chores such as preparing food or mending clothes. She had to admit, though, that safe was a relative term when the hut was located more than 200 dizzying feet above the ground. Even after four years of living in it, Kira still marveled at the structure. The dwelling had been built in a circle around the top of a great tree. The trunk rose through a hole in the middle of the floor in the main living room and disappeared through the roof. Up this high, the trunk was much thinner than it was at the forest floor far below, but it was still thick enough to provide sturdy support for the hut and the four people who lived there. Underneath the wooden platform that served as the floor hung a series of sleeping hammocks, accessible through trap doors. Branches had been cleared to allow room for the living space where the family kept their possessions and shared meals. A stone fire pit for cooking had been constructed well away from the tree trunk underneath a hole in the roof that let smoke escape. Many layers of smooth river rocks formed the base. You had to be extremely careful with fire when you lived at the top of a towering tree. One stray spark could. Kira shook her head to make that thought go away. Fire was definitely one of her memory traps. A memory trap could suck her in like a whirlpool and force her to spin backward, back to before, and then her mind, dragging her heart along with it, would end up in a very bad place. It had happened often when she first arrived. Almost everything had been a memory trap then, and whenever she'd allowed herself to dwell on certain things, she would inevitably spiral downward. Then she'd spend several days in a row not talking and hardly moving. She knew it had frightened and disturbed the people who had taken her in, and she didn't want that. They'd been very kind to her. Kira had become quite adept at avoiding these mental pitfalls. At first, it had felt like physically pushing the bad thoughts away against their will, cramming them into two small boxes and shoving them back into the deep storage areas of her brain. But now she could do it almost automatically, avoid a looming memory trap, 
as if she were merely sidestepping an ankle-twisting hole while walking in the woods. When the bad thoughts about fire threatened to pop up, she shifted her attention to the pot of stew bubbling over the flames. It was time to dip a wooden ladle into the soupy mixture of mushrooms, greens, and meat and taste test it. But Kira made a face after one slurp. She definitely needed to add salt before the others returned. She stood and ran a finger along the shelf of kitchen goods, then pursed her lips and blew out a frustrated breath. <sighs> the salt bowl was nearly empty, again. She was pretty sure it was Luan's turn to refill it, but he was out having fun somewhere in the forest, again. Kira sighed. It would take over half an hour to make her way to the salt caverns, maybe 45 minutes, definitely more than an hour round trip. Dinner would be late. Hmm, maybe she could serve the stew as is. She grabbed the ladle, took another tentative sip, and ugh, no, salt was a necessity. Kira shook her head slowly. Her first instinct was to seek out a neighbor and ask if she could borrow some, bringing along a small gift of thanks in return. That made more sense than trekking all the way to the caverns. In fact, that's certainly what she would have done back in the old days when... No, no, nope, stop. Anything she would have done in the old days was a memory trap, even something as simple as visiting a neighbor. No sense talking, even another moment to ponder it. Besides, that was not how things were done here. Tree families mostly kept to themselves. You were aware of and might become acquainted with the people who lived in the closest surrounding trees, but not in any real or intimate way. You couldn't even see them most of the time, since the individual homes were so well hidden. There was very little sharing of resources. People were expected to fend for themselves. The community structure did not lend itself to casually dropping by and asking if you could borrow some salt. Instead, she grabbed the large pouch from the hook, looped it around her shoulder so it rested on her back, and prepared for her journey. She poured a gourd full of water over the flames, and the fire disappeared with an angry hiss and a great poof of steam. It would be a pain to get it going again to reheat the stew, but there were no unattended fires when you lived in the treetops. Taking a deep breath, she walked out the front door and onto the circular platform that surrounded the hut. Her stomach still flip-flopped whenever she stepped out here. Yes, she dimly remembered that she had once enjoyed running through the trees. But not this high. Up here, when the wind blew, the treetop would actually sway back and forth a lot. The entire house often slid this way and that, as if in an earthquake. Sometimes at night her hammock would rock, feeling like someone was pushing her. The rest of the family found this quite soothing, like being a baby in a big cradle. But Kira didn't think she'd ever get used to it. On particularly blustery nights, she would hold the fibers of the hammock in a white-knuckle grip until either the wind died down or she passed out from exhaustion, whichever came first. 
The first step off the platform was always the hardest. The family had installed helpers, of course. Small loops of rope dangled from surrounding branches to function as reliable hand and footholds. Planks had been fixed to nearby tree trunks to serve as ladders to branches that were thicker and easier to walk on. But still, that first step took her from the safety of a solidly constructed home to being far above the ground without any time to get used to the idea. Kira inhaled deeply as she oriented herself. The salt caverns were located to the southeast, and Luan's father had carved the corresponding points of the compass around the rim of the hut's circular roof. Kira didn't need them at night, still knew how to navigate by the stars, but it certainly helped during the day. Checking twice to make sure she was headed in the right direction, she leaned forward slowly, grabbed onto two coils of rope for stability, and stepped out. There was always half a moment that took her breath away when her foot had left the hut's platform and was stretched out over the open air. But that feeling dissipated, mostly anyway, as soon as her foot was firmly on the branch. When she had first started living with Luan's family, she would leave through one of the trap doors and carefully climb down their home tree all the way to the ground and then make her way around by walking on the forest floor. But the more she hung out with Luan, who often went for weeks without ever touching the ground, the more confident she became. And now, even when she was by herself, she saw the value in traveling among the treetops. Her stomach plunged again when she jumped to the branches of the next tree, her entire body in the air, momentarily unanchored to anything. She always leaped toward the center, the trunk, and kept reminding herself that it wouldn't be the end of the world if she missed a branch for some reason. Luan had reassured her that it wasn't like stepping off a cliff. She wouldn't plummet straight down 200 feet to the ground. There were countless branches between her and the forest floor. Think of it like this, he had said. The tree is your friend, and it has a thousand arms that all want to catch you. He had spread out his own arms to demonstrate. I mean, sure, you might smack into a few of them and fall a bit farther than you wanted to. Here he shrugged. But eventually, you'll be able to grab onto one of them and stop yourself from falling. It's, you know, guaranteed. Kira had winced. But wouldn't that hurt? Not as much as hitting the ground. Splat! He had punctuated this sentiment by closing his eyes, letting his tongue loll out the side of his mouth and making death-rattle noises. Kira had lunged to give him a little splat upside the head for that one, but Luan had just darted out of her reach and crackled his mischievous little laugh. But his advice calmed her nerves now as she made her way from branch to branch, tree trunk to tree trunk, heading in the direction of the salt caverns. Kira was especially thankful that it was still the dry season, although she knew the daily rainstorms would be starting up at any time. A dry branch always felt like a much safer option for supporting and balancing her body weight than a stretch of rain-slick wood. She had been traveling for less than ten minutes when she heard the muted, 
but unmistakable sounds of a pack of hook hunters working its way through the area. Kira immediately found the thickest surrounding branch and took a seat, leaning back against the tree trunk for comfort. It was unwritten tree folk protocol to stay as still as possible when hook hunters passed by, as they were able to race through the trees faster than anyone else in the community, and running into someone else up here could have disastrous consequences. But Kira would have taken a break and peered out from behind the leaves anyway. She loved to watch them whenever she had the chance. First came the tracker. She came racing by, two trees over and about 20 feet below, giving Kira a perfect view. The speed, as always, was breathtaking. The tracker held a slender stick in each hand, almost like a small spear, except each one ended in a hook instead of a sharpened point. A coiled leather strap was fastened to the straight end, and it looped around the tracker's wrist to make sure that her hand wouldn't lose its grip. As the woman dashed along the branches, she constantly worked the hooks above her head in a steady rhythm of activity. They looped over the limbs, providing a split second of traction and steadiness for the tracker before they were pulled off and transferred to the next spot. She almost looked like a spider, multiple appendages being used in a coordination for mobility and stability. It was like a form of running where the arms were just as important as the legs. Only it isn't really running, Kira thought more like gliding. For one thing, the tracker was angling downward and leveraging the pull of gravity so she was moving faster than Kira could run at a dead sprint on level ground. And when she needed to reverse course, the tracker could quickly raise herself several feet in the air by hooking higher and higher branches, pulling herself skyward and running straight up the trunk. She was able to leap from tree to tree with such confidence because the hooks were much more reliable than hands for finding purchase. There were no worries about tender palms being stabbed by a sharp offshoot of branch, and on smooth limbs, the hook slid right across the surface of the wood, giving the tracker an exhilarating ride. Kira assumed she would only get a brief glimpse of the proceedings, but she was in luck. Whatever creature the tracker was trailing, it was apparently lingering in the area. The tracker zoomed past Kira's perch, but after traversing seven or eight trees in a blur of activity, she slowly started to circle back, creating a loop where Kira sat on the outer edge. Tracking prey from this height served the hook hunters well. An animal being stalked on the ground could hear a twig snap from a hundred yards away or catch the tiniest movement out of their peripheral vision or even smell a hunter if the wind shifted slightly. But this high up, the animal's keen senses were taken out of play. The tracker was like a hawk, stealthily pursuing its prey from the safety of the sky. Kira leaned forward, steadying herself with a strong grip on two neighboring branches to see if she could identify what was on the hunter's dinner menu tonight. She watched the tracker out of the corner of her eye as she scanned what little she could see of the ground far below. 
The woman with the hooks was narrowing her loop, dropping a few branches lower with each pass. So Kira trained her vision on the center of that imaginary circle. There, in a clearing through the leaves, Kira saw a flash of movement. A boar! A mighty big one, too, from what she could make out at this height. As soon as the animal popped into view, she heard the tracker's shrill whistle pierce the forest air. Time for phase two. Kira watched the surrounding woods, and here came the spotters, a boy and a girl, not much older than Kira, and so much alike, they had to be twins. With their coordinated movements, it seemed as though they'd been born for the job. The girl popped out of the branches on the eastern side of the tracker's tightening circle, while the boy came from the west. They both looked to the tracker, who was standing on the tip of a branch that was dipping dangerously. She kept one hook around an overhead branch for stability as she leaned out into the open air at an impossible angle. With her other hook, she pointed down at the boar, tracing its movements as it grunted its way through the forest, perhaps trying to hunt down a meal of its own. The spotters, taking their cue, started to circle in the air above the animal, nimbly hooking their way from limb to limb, continuing to tighten the loop like a noose. With each pass, they dropped a few branches lower, getting closer and closer to their prey. The tracker followed suit, staying equidistant between the two spotters, perfectly triangulating the beast below. Kira's heart sped up and she gripped the branches more tightly in anticipation. Almost time for the main event. If she was this nervous just watching, she couldn't imagine how her body would be reacting if she were the one about to. The kill signal was given. All three hunters, much closer together now, pulled a string on the end of each of their hooks, unfurling bright red squares of cloth that flapped in the breeze like flags. They waved them, overhead three times and then pointed to the same spot on the ground. From her bird's eye vantage point above them, the space between their bodies looked like a tunnel leading right to their prey below. Kira looked up and here came the final member of the team, the pouncer. If it had looked like the tracker was gliding, then the pouncer was flying. He dropped out of the sky like a stone, falling impossible lengths through the open air before hooking a branch or two in order to shift direction or control his speed. He zoomed past Kira in a dizzying rush, but completely silent, just like a diving bird of prey. She watched as he plunged, steering himself in between his team members and dropped right through their triangle flags. As he became a tiny doll figure far below, he hooked the lowest level of branches, then let himself fall the rest of the way to the ground. Kira could just faintly make out the terrified squeal of the boar, which must never have known it was being stopped. The tracker and two spotters tied up their flags and then dropped to the ground themselves, ready to help with the butchering or to make a travois if they had to drag their prize any distance. Whichever was the case, their families would be eating very well tonight. Kira stood and stretched, 
working the kinks out of her legs. She really shouldn't have taken the time to watch all of that. Dinner was going to be even later, but she just couldn't resist the show. She started to make her way southeasterly again, only now, after watching the fluidly coordinated movements of the hook hunters, she felt like a clumsy toddler inching her way along, and the thought of all that boar meat was making her hungry. The soup in the pot back home would be good, she was certain, but it was no substitute for a fresh haunch of wild pig, slow-roasted over an open flame. She could almost smell it. Kira was so caught up in her dinner fantasies, she didn't take careful note of her surroundings. She stepped on a branch that was rigged to work as a tripwire. A great stone dropped from a hidden perch in the tree, pulling a rope that made the net cinch up into a ball with her inside. She'd been captured. <laughs>